Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. Before I introduce this week's guest, Stephen Marsh, a couple of really quick things about, yes, the Unspeakeasy. The first is that, once again, we have our retreat in Minneapolis coming up May 8th through 11th. There's a retreat before that in Leavenworth, Washington, but that is sold out. That is old news. The one to think about is in Minneapolis. If you are interested in that, go to theunspeakeasy.com. We also have a brand new website, so that's extra exciting. The Minneapolis Retreat is going to offer a day-only package. You can come just during the day for May 9th and 10th, as well as the overnight offering, although both of those are selling out quickly. So do check them out. The second thing is that the online community for the Unspeakeasy is just around the corner. I know I've been saying that for a long time, but it's really, really true. This is going to be a place where you can come in and be part of discussion circles about all kinds of topics. We're going to have book clubs. We're going to have live events. It is for women only, but if you are a guy and you um, are finding this frustrating and uh, thinking I'm discriminating against you, I really am going to expand this whole enterprise. So we're going to have events that include men. So don't despair. Theunspeakeasy.com. Good things happening. Okay. My guest is Stephen Marsh. He is a writer, quite an eclectic writer. He's written about culture, politics, marriage. He's published six books. He's been a columnist at Esquire. He's written for all kinds of magazines. He's also a novelist. His first novel, his first book, I actually reviewed in the New York Times back in 2005. Stephen joins the podcast to talk about his new book, On Writing and Failure. You may have seen excerpts here and there in places like The Atlantic and The New York Times, and they might have stayed with you because the book is quite striking. It's about how, for even the most celebrated writers, and I would say this is true of any creative endeavor, 90% of the gig is something like utter defeat. The book is both a literary history and a kind of anti-pep talk, I'd say, that is nonetheless really inspiring. Stephen talks about that book in the main portion of the interview, and then he stays overtime to talk about some of his own failures. Uh, and uh, I talk about applying for a job at Esquire when I was very young and not getting the job because I had a typo in my resume. Everything would have been completely different for me. So that's in the bonus content if you're a paying subscriber of the Substack. And meanwhile, here is the main part of my conversation with Stephen Marsh. Stephen Marsh, welcome to The Unspeakable. Pleasure to be with you. You're a prolific journalist, essayist, novelist, critic. You've published a number of books. You've published thousands of pages, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, possibly. And the book we're talking about today is barely 90 pages. I devoured every one of them, which I guess makes sense because the book is called On Writing and Failure, uh, which is a subject very close to my heart. How did this book come about? Did you just wake up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, here's a best-selling idea? Well, it was, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, I'd written a piece about writing and failure for the New York Times, like way back in 2014. And it had kind of been on my mind for a long time. And I, I sort of kept a collection of like just notes and stuff on 
different writerly failures because I always found that those stories somehow encouraged me. Like they seem a bit depressing, but actually they're kind of consoling. Like it's consoling to know that James Joyce couldn't get a job at a technical college, right? Like even after he'd written Dubliners, like it's good. To, it, it's it's better to know that than to know that like, you know, the stories of writers struggling and then making it are, you know, they're not, they don't make you feel better, but these stories do. So I kind of had a collection of them. And then Dan at Biblioasis called me up and said, uh, do you want to write? We have this pamphlet series. And actually... I love this length, 20,000 words. I mean, you never get a chance to write it. And uh, and so I jumped on it. And like, did you start to feel like less of a failure as you worked on it? Did it do anything for your mood? Well, you know, I think these stories, like these console, the consoling nature of these stories has sort of always been there for me. Writing it down, it really did have that thing where I started to realize like, just how much of the business of writing is failure. Like you don't really think about that when you're plodding along your little life and you're trying to write stuff and you're trying to get things going. But like, it's like, right, it's, this is a business that is really integrated in failure in a bunch of different ways. Like it's not just the career stuff or the nature of submission. It's also that, you know, when you write, you're basically throwing stuff out, right? You're basically like tossing um, material that you'd written away. Right. And so like that's that that's part of it, too, much like baseball, where, you know, if you succeed three out of 10 times, you're a god. Um, like in writing, if you if one out of 10 sentences is great, you're a master. Right. And and then and then also, you know, as I started to go into it, I realized that failure really was something that was integral to even the very nature of writing, where it's like you're trying to communicate a privacy of your own to somebody else's privacy. And that process is just inherently fraught and inherently filled with failure. That's so, oh God, that's trying to communicate your privacy to somebody else's privacy. It's a yeah. really good way of putting it. And that's you, impossible to do, right? Like, I mean, that's the other thing. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because like you right at the bottom of this, you have a task that you're trying to do that is impossible, but also that you need to do. Right. So it's and then and then and then it's like, right, no wonder everyone I've ever known in this profession feels like a failure. How is it different than other artistic pursuits, though? How is it different than making music or making visual art? Well, I think that all all profession, all, all creative professions have a huge amounts of failure in them. You know, I mean, I think we all know actors and why they're so messed up. And the reason they're so messed up is that they you know, like their talent has very little to do with the, the their careers, right? Like, it's not like if you're get better at acting, you suddenly, you know, have a better career. And, you know, I think that's broadly true for all of the creative professions, architecture, painting, and so on. Um, but I think in writing, there's more of a failure is more built into the process. I mean, I, I think inherent to submission, uh, like the submission of work um, is is part of that. Um, and I, but I also think it's that when you make meaning, when you actually make meaning with your life, it, which is different than painting or acting or anything like that, you're constantly in this process of illusionment and disillusionment. And that means that you, you encounter failure like it's more it's something that you're in all the time rather than rather than something that, you know, you can sort of separate out from their wins and losses. It's something that's there with you no matter what. Wait, when you say make meaning, you're talking about making logical meaning, like well, ideas. making language, right. right? Making sense. 
right? Like making, using language to articulate positions, really, or to articulate anything. You know, that is, that is a inherently fraught business in a way that, you know, performing a role as an actor is not, for example. So, so much of, I think, what animates this book and what makes it sort of particularly meaningful in this moment is that as you discuss, and as I'm sure you have much more to say about, we're in a moment where everyone's really in it for themselves. The big institutions have largely, if not collapsed, they're just not functioning the way they used to. Big publishers, just the entire relationship a person would have with uh, his or her agent, for example, all of that has changed. And yet you are telling a whole bunch of stories from the past. I mean, you go all the way back to, to, to some of the very earliest writers. But at the same time, you say the marketplace doesn't test talent. It tests timing. And that has always been the case, like yep. well before Substack, like for, yep. for centuries, if not more. Well, I think, yeah, in terms of the the timeliness, I mean, I think we are in a declining institutions, right? And we all feel that writers of our generation feel that where, you know, the simple truth is anyone 10, 20 years older than me had it easier than me. And anyone 10 years younger than me has it way harder than me. Right. And that's because, you know, I can still vaguely remember when magazines paid three, four dollars a word. Oh, I remember that more than vaguely. I have a very, very clear memory of that. So, I mean, I only got a, the briefest taste of it, but like I, I remember that. And I remember when getting an academic job was considered perfectly normal. Like it was not, you know, like it was like, oh, you get a PhD, you'll go get a professor. Or it was a fallback option. If you exactly. were, if you couldn't make it as a highly paid magazine writer and a person getting big book advances, you could uh, always go back and get an academic job. That's what I used you to do. You could always myself. teach. Yeah. And then there were also like middle-class playwrights, like living in New York, just writing plays that were not famous. Right. This was like a, this was like a way of life that, I mean, all of that is gone. Right. And I think for writers of, you know, roughly generation X, we of course feel that loss very intensely. But then if you go even a little farther back than that generation, you realize that we're kind of returning to the historical norm now. Like, uh, and I think we're, we're obviously in a moment of extreme transition between, you know, print culture and digital culture. There have been other transitions before, and they've often, they've often been just as rough as the one we're in. And so I sort of think, like, on the one hand, we are in a, in a, in a world of collapsing literary institutions. There's no question. I mean, that Nathan Heller article in The New Yorker said that there are 60 English undergraduates at Harvard right now, six zero. I mean, that's pretty, I was pretty, yeah. Yeah, I was pretty shocked by that. That's really shocking. Um, like, like, you know, so that's, there's obviously that, but on the other hand, I think the condition we're returning to is the one that has been the norm for most of literary history. So what would you say was most analogous to this period from the past that we don't realize? The transition between, I mean, there's no precise analog, obviously there's, but I, I would say the transition from patronage to professionalism in the 18th century is actually quite like there, there are points of connection between between that and the moment we're in. I mean, when you look at Samuel Johnson, the career of someone like Samuel Johnson, where, I mean, he's just writing every single thing that can possibly yeah. exist. That you know, at the beginning where you mind. said, like, you're a prolific writer, Stephen. I mean, that's a, that's the nice way of saying, like, why the hell are you writing so much? But the reason is the same. Like, <laughs> I got second. kids. I got, I got bills, man. 
you know. Wait, that's very paranoid. I most that that's such <laughs> that, okay. Wait, let's just take a moment with that because that is like so telling of this moment that prolific writer would be interpreted as a. Uh, like it, it would be construed as a as a backhanded compliment. I, I didn't mean that at all. Uh, no, but that's just my therapist about this. I'll, I'll talk with my therapist about this tomorrow. I, I'm sure. But, you know, when I say that, that's kind of what I mean is what I'm saying. But when you look at Samuel Johnson, you know, he's writing like Latin poetry and he's writing, you know, Precy of the parliamentary debates and he's writing hooker love stories and he's running poetry contests and he's doing like everything he can possibly think of that would involve a penny going into his pocket from writing something. See, I, I, I really related to that. I I mean, I, yeah, because you, I, I did not know this about Samuel Johnson. So he was totally broke. He had a wife who was older than he yeah. was. So he needed, uh, see, you don't usually hear that. Normally they have a young wife who they're supporting, but he didn't even have a younger wife. He, he was still, she was older than him. She had health problems, but he couldn't live. She had, she couldn't live in London. He couldn't live anywhere else. He sent all the money that he made away. And he was a hack. I mean, he did hack work. He was, hack. He was not a hack, but he took every possible assignment. Well, he could do it all. Yeah. I mean, he could do, like, there's nothing that you could name that he couldn't do. Like, if you said to him today, hey, do you want to make 20 bucks to do this? He would do it, right? And, you know, that's incredible in its own way. Then he, you know, tried to get patronage for the dictionary, couldn't get it. And then that was, the it's funny, but the dictionary is actually kind of the beginning of professionalization in that sense, that as we know it, where, like, he made money from actually selling copies of the book to a mass audience. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like he, I, very recognizable to me and you, no doubt. I mean, how many writers do you know who are just like that? Just like Samuel Johnson. Well, not that, not that many, but it does. No. It reminded me of when I started out and actually for mo- for a lot of my career, I would just do anything for money. I would take any assignment. So when I was in my twenties, I would I would be working on really ambitious things and like trying to send things to the New Yorker, et cetera, but also be writing any single thing like a women's magazine offered me because they paid well. So I would take any assignment. I would go do copywriting. I would do ads. I would do, I would do absolutely anything. And what's funny is I still have that instinct just the other day, somebody, an editor came to me, which doesn't happen all that much anymore, uh, and wanted me to do something. And my first instinct was like, yes, yes, I'll do it. Before even asking like when it was due or how much it paid and, and all that. And so it's just, it's like a, it's like a muscle reflex that you can't, yeah. you can't unlearn. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, I think it's good to go and do whatever. Do you know what I mean? Well, like, I mean, if I, it's, I, if it fun. pays, yeah. It, yes, if it, it pays, is fun. Yeah. It is, yeah. it is fun, but it's possible to just take too many, say yes to too many things that don't yeah. pay. Yeah. So w- which of these stories really sort of kind of hits you in the gut the, the hardest? There's a lot here, but what, what kind of tends to stay with you? I don't know. I mean, the ones that I think about a lot are, well, A.M. Klein, who I, who I think about a lot, who had basically a complete nervous bre- breakdown when he was around my age. And essentially went from, you know, Canada's most interesting writer to, you know, people thought he was deaf and mute uh, on his on his street. He, he, he didn't just stop writing. He basically stopped speaking. I, I think about him a lot. 
I, I mean, some of the, like they're, they all kind of have a special place for me. I mean, like I like Sima Kian, who was the great historian, the grand historian who like, you know, they, he made some mistake at court and the emperor's like, well, we're going to castrate you um, as punishment. And he was like, you're not supposed to stay alive after you're castrated. Like you're after you're just supposed to kill yourself. It's like oh. basically an instruction saying like, hey, castrate yourself, kill yourself. But he submitted to be castrated in order that he could finish this history. And he went on for like 10 years in a state of real misery um, in order to finish this historical work, which is, you know, you know, probably the most, you know, we would not have a record of the Kin or Han dynasties if he had not written them. And, you know, I think that kind of endurance, that kind of like, I, that's like saintly endurance to me. Do you know what I mean? But I, all of these stories have a, have a place in my heart for sure. So let's talk about your career, just so we know where all of this is coming from. You sure. uh, Did you always want to be a writer? Are you like me? Did yes. you have no other skills? I wanted to be a writer based, before puberty. <laughs> okay. So you were an early identifier as, yeah. as a writer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how did you go about pursuing that? Well, I mean, I think I've had a, like, I'm having a really weird career, which I think, you know, fits the times, right? Like, at first, I wrote avant-garde novels and was a Shakespeare professor. You actually were the first person to review me in the New York Times book review, as I, as I remember, right? I was? I was the first? I, that was a big, that was actually a significant moment in my career. Oh. That was a big deal. That was, that was the, maybe the biggest deal of my 20s. Because it? It, it was a weird little novel published in Canada, right? And it got published in the New York Times book review. It got reviewed in the New York Times book review. And that, that was a big deal. So there was that. And then, so I was writing books like Raymond and Hannah and like these, in these weird novels and a Shakespeare professor. Then my wife got a big job in Toronto. I was teaching in New York and I gave up a tenure track job to, you know, because she was, they gave her her own magazine and she was editor in chief. And so like, we really couldn't turn it down. And then I was sort of thrown into freelancing, like magazine work, which I'd never done before, journalism. And a couple of years later, I was a columnist at Esquire for eight years. And that was, that was great. They were like a wonderful tribe of writers to be around. Yeah. And they taught me how to, you know, every one of those thousand word columns got worked through like uh, six or yep. seven drafts. And I really think yeah. it's, you know, I don't think kid writers will ever get that kind of education anymore because it's simply too time consuming and expensive to do. But like for eight years, I had really serious people go over every word that I wrote of a thousand word culture column. And, and that, that was, that was great. Then that ended. And I mean, that only ended like five years ago and it already seems like, you know, the summer of love in San Francisco or something like that. And so then I've been doing a lot of audio. I've been doing books like this i've been and meanwhile i've written novels and books and other things like that and yeah i mean it's a very weird time to be a writer and you have to roll with the punch and you have to you know suddenly involve yourself in technologies and practices that you couldn't have imagined when you were a kid but like i i think i have a bit of an an innovative streak in me i, I kind of like facing like it's like something i wanted like audio i'm like yeah i want to do this I want to see what this is like. I want to figure out how this storytelling works. So, yeah, it's 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 been quite weird as a career. You have a very successful podcast 
series, right? Like, how has that been? They did audio series for, I did two audio series for Audible, and they were, that was tremendous. I mean, again, like, the guys, the producers with it, like, gave me a week with a uh, with an audio guy to teach me how to interview people, um, which I didn't really know how to do. I knew how to interview people for magazine pieces, but I didn't know how to interview people for audio. And they really like sat me down and taught me how to do that. And that was just tremendously useful. And then, yeah, it was a, the, both of the series that we did, How Not to Fuck Up Your Kids Too Bad and How Not to Fuck Up Your Marriage Too Bad, they were super fun to make. And um, they did very well. They were, they were in the bestsellers or whatever on Audible. God, I would love to know how they taught you how to interview somebody for audio. Oh, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. Well, they taught me active listening, which is, but also they taught me that, you know, audio is a visual, things like audio is a visual medium. So you, you don't want, you don't, you know, when you do magazine work, I know you know this, you just sort of sit there and be quiet and people fill the silence and they give you huge quantities of information and then you cut and pare it down to make it fit in your argument. Um, but when you're doing audio, you really want people to describe scenes as if they're in a movie. And getting them to do that is really tricky. And they have all these tricks. There's all these like incredible professional tricks. Like if you want someone to tell a joke, you tell them a joke and they'll almost automatically tell you a joke back. It's fascinating. Oh my gosh, I should take this class. I've just been winging it here for the last It was based on that. On there was a years. comic book. There was a comic book called or a graphic novel called on the wire it was like and it was it was a bunch of different npr people talking about how to um oh, yeah. interview people and it was incredibly useful i mean it was just in i mean that's all i i just ripped that off those are just that that was the techniques they taught me and that's what i did yeah god and i got know, better so, at it over time yeah you definitely get better at it and when i started this podcast i think i had so internalized Terry Gross, just listening to her for so many decades, she was kind of like the the baseline interviewer, I think, in many people's ears. And so I still, I think I still, there's a certain cadence that I just sort of ripped off from her that I well, find imitating myself. Terry Gross, like when you learn, like learning how to do this stuff, like imitating Terry Gross to me is like saying, I want to write music like Bach. Like <laughs> she is very, like what she does where she gets people to emote and describe scenes in real time is that is strictly there's like two or three people in the world who can do that it's basically her and howard stern right Ah. like and i i would never i'm not even i want to get to useful for audio and i can get there but like terry gross i mean that's like that's like saying i want to sing like Pavarotti. like it, it, it it's you know it's it's what she does basically only she can do and it's I love that you mentioned Howard Stern because I think I I've always thought he's a fantastic interviewer and actually anybody who interviews in a serious way knows that Ira Glass used to talk about how Howard Stern had been a huge influence on him. Oh, he's the best. Uh, I mean, he, yeah. He, yeah, like it's him and Terry Gross one and two. You could debate which one is one and which one's two, but like, yeah, they're the stuff that Howard Stern gets out of people is totally incredible, and it's all these really really subtle psychological tricks and they work you you wonder if he knows that he's doing it how conscious 100 percent. you think he does oh yeah you know i mean he's thought through all that a million times yeah so how do you feel about kind of leaning more into the audio medium because this is something i struggle with so i have two podcasts now uh i i write when i can but there's a big part of me that just feels like a failure 
every day because I'm not writing. I'm talking instead of writing. Well, I think to me, audio, like that is, I mean, you have to, you know, a, a book that really had a big influence on me was um, Reality Hunger by David Shields. Oh, David Shields. Yeah. And, you know, that was probably the last book that I read that really changed my practice. Right. And like, you know, you read your stuff when you're a kid and you develop your things. But that was the book I read it when I was like in my mid thirties. And he has this line where he's like, we have to write for the phone. Right. Like, and I, I think when you're doing audio, you know, the stuff I was doing for Audible, those are essays. They are traditional essays with structure, with essayistic structure. They have research in them exactly like magazine pieces, except that instead of writing down the speech, you actually have clips of the speech. And they're written in that exact structure. I mean, I consider that every bit as much writing as a magazine feature, right? And I think every medium has its advantages and disadvantages. And I think audio is a superb medium. You know, for one thing that's great about doing audio is that unlike print, like print now, if you can take out 140 characters that are embarrassing in a piece, that will go on Twitter and that will become the whole piece, right? But on audio, you never get canceled for audio. Right. Because the ideas that you're discussing are they're more complex in the nuance of the voice and the humanization of the person is the whole point of it. Like you're you're it's such so much more intimate medium that. Yeah, that it's kind of a more a more a more open venue for complex ideas. And I think that's like I, I absolutely just want to run right into that. Yes. And. Uh, there are people whose entire jobs are to listen to Joe Rogan and go go through everything with a fine tooth comb and find some cancelable thing that people said. So if you get big enough, there will be people going after your guests to cancel them. But this is actually something that I've thought about a lot because people often say to me, why don't you publish the transcripts of your interviews? And I don't do it because as you just described, that's where people get themselves in trouble. Well, and also no one actually does cancel Joe Rogan, right? <laughs> like, I mean, they'll, not Joe Rogan himself, but if they, no. they're they happy to pull out a clip of uh, Barry Weiss, you know, in the a, a three-hour interview, and if there's 10 seconds in which she says something that she should have said, that's what will get pulled out. That's the problem. Right. She's also doing okay, too, though. Like, I mean, that like just using the, that as an example of the first thing I can think of, but yeah, yeah. yeah. But my my point is like it, for audio people, like the audience, the, the the viral mobs won't come for it, not in the same way. They not can't, in they the same way, it. for sure, no. for sure. Whereas they do with like if you can just remove a, a like for, for a magazine article or something like that, they absolutely can. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's yes. Very very true. Although I had an experience once where I was interviewed for a podcast and unbeknownst to me the the transcript was taken and then converted into an article for the associated magazine the magazine that was associated with the podcast and i had because i i had been speaking rather elliptically and it just kind of got just transcribed verbatim and it it, it made it sound like i was saying something about somebody that i was not saying and that person got very very upset and there were some legal threats made oh boy. that way. Yeah. So yeah, you, you, you do have to be careful. Well, so like when you talk about how people, you know, young writers coming up now, writers who are say in their, their twenties and their thirties, do you feel like they 
it's it is harder for them than it was for us. But sometimes I think that it's easier for them maybe because they don't know the other way of being like they I, I have this like level of perfectionism that comes from that experience of re- having the same thousand words edited again and again and again and it makes it very hard for me to just like write stuff for Substack every day the way you're supposed to yeah I, I mean I like the young writers that I know it's I mean it's so much harder I, it like it just it's just strictly on the career stuff like I don't know about the the writing practice I think that's hard for everyone and it and it goes differently for everyone but I mean if you want to write a novel and you're like 25 right now I mean that is a that is a hard road to hoe like that is that is a that is a very very difficult path that you've taken on much harder than when I was 25 and you know there are other opportunities like you know there are other things to do that are good and there are other there there are other ways to write that are interesting and good, but I I just think it's brutal. I mean, and that is true. I I would say of all the creative fields, really. Like I think that's also true for musicians and playwrights and everyone else. Why is it harder to write a novel now when you're if you're 25? What's because people don't want them anymore. People don't I mean, want the them. market. The market has shrunk uh, enormously. Um, the the number of people who are educated in literate in that way is shrinking, and it's just people are reading on their phone. I mean, it, it's real simple. Like we're in the middle of this transition between print and the phone. People like people are on their phones, right? And like that's why I more or less am just writing for the phone now. Like I think that's where we are, and you know, but I, I think young writers do that too. Writing for the phone, what does that mean? Well, it means uh, it means a lot more essays. You know, this book, in a, in a sense, is a pretty good thing to read on a phone, right? Like, it, like it, it's the kind of thing where you could read it on a... If you downloaded it just before you got on a short-haul flight, it'd be perfect, right? If you, the audio of it is, like, I, I think it's two hours long, that, the audio of it. I mean, that's a, that's a good length to listen to, right? I did the recording myself of that, which I, I love doing. Um, when, and it's the first time I ever did the audio for my own. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think also like being aware that of writing articles out of pieces that then drive people to things and just working in audio and working in other medium, right? Like, I think, I think that's what it means to write on the phone. Okay. That is, I have to think about that. Right for the phone, I should say. Right for the phone, right. I mean, I do know some people who actually write on their phone. I know. I I mean, I just can't believe that. I mean, it really is one of those things where it's like, wow, you're actually, I I have a friend who I saw him doing that on like typing on his iPhone, like writing fiction on it. So strange to me. Do you have a Substack? You do not, do you? No, I don't. And I have avoided that. I've consciously decided not to have it. Why? Um, I didn't want audience capture. That's what I just like for the, like for the, I mean, first of all, I write on a really weird array of subjects. Like, you know, there's no consistency to what I write about. Like, it's not like I write about AI and I write about American politics and I write books like this and I write weird things that I suddenly think about. And I've kind of learned, you know, for a while, for a long time, I actually hated that about myself. I was like, you know, I should really get to be a more coherent brand or what have you like i should focus on something and i've really realized like i'm just not going to 
like what happens is I become fascinated with things and then I pursue them and that's that's who I am and there's not there's not really anything I can do about it and that just doesn't like I I think the substacks that work are people like you know like my friend G G here who has like who writes a certain thing of pol a certain take on American politics he writes it and it there's an audience for it and and he just applies it consistently I, I also don't like the fact that you are you become the um you know the servant of your audience yeah which you have to feed and i do think when you look at people who who write for these kind of things they their their view tends to narrow and they tend to they tend to become less and less open as thinkers every year that they do it but that's i i, I mean I, I obviously i'm not an, i'm not judging anyone but that that's sort of how i feel Oh yeah, no, it's, it's as you're talking, I'm thinking like it's having a sub stack is just like having your own Audrey too, you know, if anybody What's gets that? this reference, little shop, little that. shop of horrors, little oh. shop of horrors. The, the plant was named Audrey too, because the, the main character Seymour, he, Audrey one was the, the woman he was in love with the object of his affection. And then he had this man eating plant that he right. named Audrey too. And then they just had to, they had to keep feeding it, you know, it, yeah. it led to his led to professional success and, and monetary reward, but they just had to keep feeding the plant. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, human blood. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> and, and, you know, but you also have to keep feeding it more. Like, I, I wondered if there was some way to do an analysis, but I actually feel like when you, like, I, ch I check in and out of people's substacks, but like, I bet if you went to somebody's substack and then you went a year later, the, the, the vocabulary would have tightened. Like, I think like it, there's just a certain kind of narrowing that happens inevitably. It's just like because of the market that you're serving. Um, that it it leads to a, it leads to a kind of narrowing of thinking. Yeah, I interviewed Freddie DeBoer recently, and he's prolific. Now he is somebody that, uh, if one were to say you're prolific, he would not take it the wrong way. Right. Uh, it's un undeniable. And it was, you know, I, I came clean. I mean, he had. I said he he had written an essay about the '90s a few weeks earlier that had done really, really well. And it was like one of these, objectively, the 90s were the best decade to be alive, something like that. And he talked about just the the way that was kind of the last period where we were sort of as analog as we were digital, you know, all, all the things that we hear about the 90s. And he was a teenager in the 90s. And I have to say, it was one of those experiences where I, I subscribed to his Substack and I saw that piece and I said, I cannot read this because this is the kind of piece that I have written many times in my life as a magazine writer, as, as an essayist in my own books. And I have labored over this kind of piece and this topic and gone through multiple drafts. And I bet you anything, he wrote this in a day or so. And it's going to kill me because it's obvious that it's a big hit. People are loving it. Everybody's talking about it. He's getting tons and tons of new subscribers. And so when I spoke to him, I said all of this. I Everything I just said to you, I said to him. And I said, how long did it take you to write the piece? And he said, oh, um, I'd say about four hours. <laughs> right. You know, Samuel Johnson, Samuel Johnson was famous for he'd be at a party and somebody would come to him and say, we need a column on this. Like he invented column writing, basically. We need a column on this. He, he, someone would bring him a piece of paper. He'd write both sides of the piece of paper in like 20 minutes, hand it to the copy boy and ask for another piece of paper. Another piece of paper would come and then he'd, he'd finish the column. 
right? And th and that's why it's one of the things that you notice in Samuel Johnson, if you're a Samuel Johnson scholar, is that two thirds of the way through most of his columns, he changes his mind. There's a there's there's a but, it, like because because he's written this stuff and then he goes away to a party, talks for another hour, and then he's like, oh, I got to write this thing. You know, this is the kind of transition between between print between that we're talking about. It has these effects on people. You know, it like it has this effects on the way people write. I mean, like I I just think like, I, you know, I was ne I hated blogs. Like I never read blogs. Did you? Not really. Never. I mean, life's too short, man. There's like a lot of really good writing out there. Why would you? I I don't know. But you know, on the other hand, like they are more like the the the, re the reason they have this this viability is that they are so more intimate than the often like stultifying and totally enclosed form that magazine writing has taken on lately. I mean, you know, which we I I, I think also we all feel. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. So right. what happened to magazine writing? Because sometimes I think I'm losing my mind and sometimes I think I'm being too hard on the whole thing because there are still great pieces. I mean, The New Yorker, you know, everyone knocks The New Yorker now, but it still publishes fantastic reporting and very, very good uh, criticism often. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think, I mean, to me, what happened, like what I saw anyway, is that the kind of piece that I really love or that has become extremely rare. It does exist, but it's extremely rare. I mean, there's still, as you say, there's excellent reported pieces, not just in the New Yorker, but in a lot of places. Yes. Um, and, and there's excellent criticism and so on. But the kind of pieces that I really loved were essentially the reported essay where the writer started out with an assumption that turned out to be wrong. Right. And you And you went along with them in their journey of figuring out what happened and that, and that you saw ideas fall away and ideas emerge and you, you, you got experience, like you experienced something with someone where you were experiencing the change in their thinking. And that to me is, you know, one of the most, that's what a huge part of Like when you think of the soliloquy in Renaissance drama, um, that's what it is. You're watching someone's thinking change on stage, right? And I, I think that's a hugely humanizing experience, a, a aesthetic value, where because you you the thing you have to understand is that you're wherever you are in your life, whatever you believe, you're probably mistaken, and everyone else is mistaken too. And figuring things out is a continuous process where you figure out life a little bit more all the time, right? And that that's the, that's the process of coming to understand how, how things are. And, you know, th what that requires, though, is a lot of, you know, humility and also forgiveness, right, of, of yourself and other people. And I think our appetite for forgiveness is just gone. What you just described is what a lot, not all, but many of the quote-unquote heterodox figures like to talk about. So in my world, we're always talking about questioning yourself, not being certain, everything that you just laid out. So there are a lot of people in the kind of podcasting space, sort of online intellectual space, who are beating that drum all day and patting themselves on the back for being that way. Right. But I'm listening to you and I'm like, you're right. I don't see it that we used to accomplish that 
by writing essays. Like my instinct as an essayist is exactly what you just laid out, but you're right that we're not seeing it in written form anymore. If, if at all, the only place we're seeing it is like by listening to people talk and there are limitations there because it's not art, you know? Well, nothing like like a well-considered paragraph, like nothing is more dense and more transformative than that. You know, I mean, there just is, I don't think there's anything that can really compare to like a really well-written essay. I mean, or, or really well-written story or whatever. I mean, I still think the essay is alive. I mean, look at the thing I just published. I'm very proud of that. And that is exactly the kind of thing we were just talking about. But in, in terms of magazine land, I just think it's gotten a lot smaller. And part of that, I think, is also just the numbers. Like, I, I do remember when, like, a, an editor came to me and said, we've done the math. No one reads past 2,500 words. And they're not wrong. Like, you can go and look at the numbers. And it's like, right, why would you write past 2,500 words then? I mean, there's two things you can do. You can either mourn that or you can say, like, okay, what I'm going to figure out now how to do is write the best 2,000-word pieces that can be made, Right. And that's also sort of what I meant by earlier by writing for the phone. Mm -hmm. Speaking of essays that are reported essays that discover something new, that take a turn, you talk a lot about David Foster Wallace in this Mm -hmm. book. He is somebody who was absolutely revered, fetishized in his time. Uh, A lot of that had to do with his own the sort of romance around his own depression and mental illness. You actually say, this is what you write. Writers, it can't be, it can't be denied, have a higher propensity to mental illness than ordinary people. A study of all poets reviewed in the New York Times book review between 1960 and 1990 revealed that 18% had committed suicide. Really? That was the number. I mean, that was the number in the, in the book. That, I mean, I think I didn't, I, did the exclamation point survive in the no, test? No, there's no, no, no. Like at one point I did have a, a bracket exclamation point unbracket beside it. Like it was, I mean, yeah, it's a shocking number, but that, that was the number that I read in the, there was, because there was the, the J, um, the, the fire book, which there has been some criticism of from a statistical point of view. But there were later studies done on mood disorders and poets that were quite extensive and really quite well done and, you know, a, a, you know, much more statistically sound than that. And they came up with pretty much the same numbers. Right. And so, yeah, like I think it, it is pretty shocking that, that the suicide number was just poets, though. Isn't that right? Yeah, and the the yeah. book you're referring to, touched touched with fire by touched K by, Red, by K Redfield Jameson. So that yeah. was his 1993 study of writing and mental illness. So she compiled yeah. anecdotes on the mental conditions of hundreds of writers between 1705 and 1805. So exactly, right. be- you you write before the advent of the romantic connection between madness and genius, and I would have said well before Tumblr and TikTok, right? Yeah, so right. well, well before that, they were about five times more likely to kill themselves than the general population. But you have to wonder if that's causation or correlation. Well, and there's a, well, there's a, that's the beginning of the problems, right? I mean, it, it, like it's a, it's a, it's a shocking number, but like, there's also like, well, where, where did you get these, are these anecdotes that were written down because they committed suicide and therefore became note, noteworthy, um, at, you know, and, and so on. There's like a lot of other things in that. But the next study that I mentioned is really much more 
solid. And it came to, I mean, I, the numbers weren't that high, but there was a way higher uh, propensity towards mood disorders in particular and bipolar um, affect uh, than thing. And I mean, as I say in the book, like, I think that's something that if you're going to be a writer, you actually have to pay attention to. Like, you actually have to, like, think, you know, okay, well, how am I going to stay sane? Like, because it is a risk. Do you think it's easier to stay sane if, like Samuel Johnson, you need the money and you'll just do whatever is necessary? Well, he had like intensely crippling OCD and 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 a huge like undiagnosed but massively bipolar. So he would not be he would be like he would definitely fall under the category. I don't know if, of mentally ill if that would be the right term, but you know he was he was like. You know, he had periods of depression that would last for months. And then suddenly he would, I mean, I think he wrote Rasselas, his novel, in like nine days. He would have these wow. manic fits. And then he would not do anything for long periods of time. Um, and then plus he had like really, really like OCD that was not like not eccentric, like not funny, but like really hard to deal with, like real, like dist dis disruptive to his life. So, yeah, I mean, those were not the terms that they used in at the time, but in hindsight, it's pretty clear that's what he had. He would he would definitely not be in the mentally healthy writer category. So do you have feelings about the way people are kind of dealing with their quote unquote mental illness or just their kind of psychological struggles today? Because you don't see them processing it through art the way it used to. It comes through TikTok videos and Twitter posts and people acting out online. And you can sometimes see people having meltdowns right before your eyes in real time. And I sometimes watch these things and I think, God, wow, it's too bad that this person doesn't just sit down and write a brilliant essay about this experience you're obviously having. That's pretty romantic, Megan. I mean, I think, well, I think people know. are, I, I mean, like, I think, like David Foster Wallace is a good example where like when he was creative was when the Nardo was working, when the med, when the meds were working, like, and you know, I think, and he, he knew that too. Like, I don't think mental illness helps at all with creativity. I really don't. I think it's one of those things like alcoholism where you sort of have this impression that it does, but if you actually go into Jermaine Greer wrote an amazing uh, essay about alcoholism and writing where she actually went through you know, all the examples of it, the famous examples of it. And it was like, no, the alcoholism just destroyed the creativity. It was when they got off the booze that they were really able to make things. Right. And, and, and I think exactly the same thing with mental illness. It's like, there's this romantic association from the audience because the audience is so sick that they like writers to kill themselves. Like they prefer writers who have killed themselves. They idol, they idolize them, you know, just like they do with rock and roll. I mean, that was the thing about Wallace is that he wasn't just a writer suicide. He was a rock and roll suicide. Yeah. Right. In, in the, in the tradition of, you know, Amy Winehouse and uh, Kurt Cobain. And so like, there's no evidence to me at all that me mental illness or alcoholism or any of that stuff leads to better writing. I just don't think it does. You talk a lot about Wallace in this in this piece in this book. Did you know him? Like, what no. is your relationship to him as a writer and as a as just his legacy? Well, I never. I'm. I would not call myself a big David Foster Wallace fan. I mean, I think the essays are really brilliant, 
and I love them. And like what we were talking about earlier about like experiencing, like going in with your assumptions and then having them shattered. I mean, those are, those are wonderful examples. Yeah. Like, like I I do not like infinite jest. Like did you get through it? Did you admit it? Did you finish it? Why would, how could you get through it? It's like, I mean, it's just so boring and, did I, you I just, tell people you went on dates with that you had read the whole thing? Because I think that that's why that book was written. For the, the sole the, um, purpose of getting laid. Because the, the women I was dating would have definitely preferred if, for me to hate David Foster Wallace. But oh. um, that's probably a sign of my good taste. But the, no, I mean, not to take away from like the brilliance of a lot of his work. But, you know, I, I always found him to be... Uh, a celebrity in the negative sense of that word like he's an he's an he was an icon of something that the american public happened to need at one point and that really didn't you know when i the, the quote about the market doesn't test talent it tests timing i mean he came along with a bandana at just the right time and that that's really it say more about that why why did we need a bandana at the time he always said that he wore the bandana around his head, by the way, if anybody doesn't know who David Foster Wallace was or what he looked like. He did He did not wear a bandana around his neck. He wore it around his head and he would say that it was to keep the contents of his brain from exploding out of his skull. Well, you know, I think the irony and what I do find very beautiful and tragic even about Wallace is that he saw the cultural torment that he was an expression of which is that the triumph of images over words, which, you know, you and I are now living at sort of the end part of that. Um, but he was, he really saw it at the beginning. And, you know, the, I think one of the most like selfishly, uh, j- just to speak selfishly, like one of the worst things about his suicide is that he died just before the iPhone came out and a David Foster Wallace essay about the iPhone would be extraordinary. Right. I mean, that was exactly like I would love to read that of all the lost literary works. I mean, that would just be, that would just be incredible. But, you know, at the same time, like he was a triumph, he was himself a triumph of image over word. Um, Like he was a, he was a required figure. There needed to be a great American novelist, capital G, capital A, capital N um, that fit in with grunge music, popular music, the nineties, generation X, et cetera. He was the, in between of them, he, he I mean, he, he gave interesting photographs. Therefore, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, you know, not only could it were like his major book was basically unreadable and nobody read it, you know, that 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 only helped him. Right. That only that only made it seem better. Yeah, I, I remember hearing Mary Carr, the, the poet who he dated, saying that she had had to tr- talk him out of posing for a gap ad. Right. <laughs> Well, you know, and then the person that was that came after that, I mean, it was a, sort of the same thing was, and although, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, he was he was a very he had moments of real brilliance and I don't want to take away from any of that. Like, like, I, I, I don't like he, he, he wrote in some astonishing things, but it was it was what's her name? Who was the the like um, the fake writer who was um, oh, J.T. Leroy, J.T. Leroy. I mean. The thing I found really, if you ever seen the documentary about her and, and the writer who did it, is that there's this amazing moment when the, the woman who actually did write J.T. Leroy is at the book launch with the actor playing J.T. Leroy, and Bono comes up to give the fake J.T. Leroy 
a, a pep talk about what it's like to be a celebrity in the 90s and he kicks the real writer out of the room <laughs> like, like like you know and i've always thought that was like a moment that happened like that's the last time we really had famous novelists where it's like yeah they don't actually want the writer they don't actually want the person who makes the words they want this image right and 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 it's like yeah there, there's this kind of the jt Leroy thing is like a kind of perfect example where it's like literally the imago of the novelist goes on a party with bono like i, I think it's in rome it's some crazy thing um and she's off with like talking about movie ideas with gus van zandt and the whole yeah. nine yards and the writer is like at home in her hotel watching tv yeah i don't think it's any accident that every writer we've touched on in this conversation almost everyone is a is a white pretty heteronormative writer and a lot of what we hear now is that i think i talked about a castrated uh, second century you asian did. writer in the book i'm saying in this conversation because you know oh, right. i'm i'm yeah. very uh, i'm very close minded but i mean with thinking of all the uh, the, the stars of the magazine the golden Ma age of magazine era those were it, it was an elite class. By the way, speaking of which, Joseph Mitchell, uh, who was a big hero of mine when I was in my 20s, he right. did not write a single thing for 34 years going into the offices of The New Yorker. <laughs> it's extraordinary, right? Yeah. What do you think, if anything, about the the shift that, that you know, there has been a real effort, and I think for a lot of good reasons, to showcase and center different kinds of of writers especially when it comes to novels and fiction you know i as a matter of fact i am uh probably by the time this posts i will have already been to a philip roth festival oh and yep in newark new jersey there's going to be a philip roth conference celebrating what would be his 90th birthday and i was just stunned that such a thing was being put up i was delighted but I was the fact that I was so surprised by this really says something. So I don't know. I mean, I know you're not a culture war person. Uh, I'm really to not your, to your credit. But like, do you have thoughts? Just going back to what we were talking about earlier about what people have an appetite for and what publishers are sort of willing to take chances on and and what they're not. Like, what do you make of all that? I I don't really have an opinion. I certainly don't have an interesting one. Like, I think writers, like, the exposure of writers, first of all, I think one of the things is envying writers is really a bad idea. You're, you're always wrong, and you don't know what happens or why. And, you know, also, I think the, the industry has always sort of been ridiculous, right? Like, it's not like, it's, it's not like, it, people, like, I don't know. I don't really have an opinion about it. Like, I think there are a lot of good books now. I think there are a lot of good writers of a lot of different types. I think there were in the past. I mean, you know, people that I write about in this book, like this this patron saint of this book is James Baldwin, right? I mean, he's the one who get, who's like the basic advice of this book. And I talk about Alex Hawley a lot too. And yeah. I wanted, in this book anyway, what I really wanted was to show, and I did make a conscious effort to have a cosmopolitanism in time and space. Right. Where because this this particular subject, like writerly failure, is something that no one escapes from. Right. Like Ovid faced it and Sima Qian faced it and Li Bai faced it and Du Fu faced it and James Baldwin faced it and George Orwell faced it. And 
like and Herman Melville faced it. And you, there's no, what I've always wanted in my writing, and I think it actually has something to do with living in Toronto, where it is this, you know, extreme multicultural city, is that the exposure to the world, like, I, I, I want to, I want to, the connections between these different groups, these different cultures, these different liter- literatures, is very palpable to me. And it's something that I, I actually cherish pretty intensely. And, and the book, like, I want to see the connections between ninth century Chinese poetry and James Baldwin. I, I think that's part of the humanization process. Like, I think that's part of understanding what it means to be human, is to understand that these different perspectives actually have resonance with each other and that they exist in a kind of constellation of meanings that is separate from geography or chronology. And, you know, that, that, is, that was one of the things I wanted to do in the book is sort of, you know, like Abdul Kasef, who I talk about in the book, like 11th century Persian poet. If you read the conclusion to his masterwork, you and I know exactly what he's talking about. People promised me money and they didn't pay me. How many times has that happened to you, right? Like, I do want to, I hate the culture wars. I want nothing to do with them. But my reaction is to go towards cosmopolitanism, to go towards the light. And that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, no, I, that's one of the things I loved about this book. You talk about all kinds of different writers from different eras and different backgrounds, and they're writing in all different languages, and yet they're all throwing themselves up against the same door, exactly yeah. the same way. Yeah, no, it was in Baldwin, you know, he says, find a way to keep alive and write. There's really nothing else to say. If, he says, if you're going to be a writer, there's nothing I can say to stop you. If you're not going to be a writer, nothing I can say will help you. But it's it's endurance, right? He says, discipline, luck, love, and most of all, endurance. And then George Orwell's line, which I also think, you know, one, I cannot stop thinking about this line because I think it's so true. He says, you know, any life viewed from the inside is nothing but a series of defeats. Yeah. And I just think that's that that is such a piece of wisdom. You know, I mean, that is just so true. Like that is just, and, and we forget that so often. And, and it is like, you know, yeah, of course. Like who do, you, who do you know out there who, I mean, it's the opposite of Instagram, right? Where everyone's on vacation with like, and, and perfectly embodied and so on. Like, yeah, every life view from the inside is a series of defeats. I mean, that, that's the connection. But it's kind of exactly what Instagram is illustrating, right? Because we're viewing from the outside, when we look at Instagram, the people who are posting on Instagram, they must feel their life is a series of defeats. Everything they do in real life is a defeat when compared with whatever image that they have posted. But I, I love too that you touch on this concept of fail better. So that came from Samuel Beckett and it's just been co-opted by all kinds of like you know, business, business philosophers, Yeah, but it didn't mean like (laughs) swing for the fences. It meant just sort of like integrate failure into your self-concept in a way that is elegant, really. I don't know how else to put it. I think, I think the word that I would use, although, you know, I don't know if Beckett would, would be grace, right? It's like, and also you have to understand like, if you're failing doing something that is really valid, that is, i.e., trying to share your privacy with somebody else across time and distance and across 
in, in a in a constellation of human meaning that gives a sense of you know diminished loneliness in the cosmos it's okay to fail at that do you know what i mean like it like that, that that's that's worth failing at and it and, and like it's I think what what he really meant was like since failure is inherent, like you just have to get better at failing. It's not like fail in order to succeed. It's actually fail in a way that is more meaningful, that is more graceful, that is that is better. You write at this moment. I have no idea whether I'm successful or not. That's the honest truth. There would be those who find it ridiculous to consider me a failure. I make a living from writer. I don't even have to teach. <laughs> you receive fan mail almost every day. But others would consider the idea that I might consider myself a successful writer equally ridiculous. You say, I've barely been published internationally. I only earned out on a couple of books. I alienated myself out of the literary community of my own country as quickly as possible. I am unprizable. Okay, I'm not sure why that is. I don't know if you want to explain that. But yeah, you're really, you're talking about a certain kind of cognitive dissonance here. Yeah. That's very relatable. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that, really helped me to see this was meeting writers that I, I absolutely knew were successful. Like anyone would consider them successful and they absolutely don't feel that way. Like they just don't like, in fact, they're more tormented at all. Like, you know, I've known some people who've made tens of millions of dollars from writing and they, that doesn't, that doesn't cure you of the feeling that you haven't been recognized. It really doesn't. And I, I think, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote this book is I think it's good for kid writers to know that. Like, it's like, because it's important to know that you're not going to get to a place where this is all going to go away. Right. Like when you wrote that New York times book review for me, I was probably happy for a week. Oh, that's right? good. That's a yeah, lot. I know. Well, I was young. I didn't know. I didn't know. Like now it doesn't, now nothing, yeah. now no, nothing happy registers for five minutes. Oh, I'm right? so honored. Yeah. That was 2005 Raymond and yeah. Hannah. Yeah. Right. Like, so, you know, I probably got a week of happiness from that. Now as a similar thing, nothing. You know, has no effect whatsoever. But so it's, you know, I think it's important for for kid writers to know that like this is the battle. Like this is the this is the life you have to choose if you want to do this. And that you, you should not go around expecting it to end, because it won't. You have a great story about Margaret Atwood at a cocktail party. It's you're relaying somebody else's story, but do you want to Well, yeah. I mean it's in it, it's definitely um hearsay. Like, you know, she just like he said, he said, I'd written something in the New York Times. She's like, well, I also write in the New York Times. And it was like, right. You know that you're Margaret Atwood, right? Like you're like, like, I mean, I literally posted a letter the other day with a Margaret Atwood stamp on it. Like, like, you know, there's there's no there's in America, there's no equivalent for Margaret Atwood. It would be as if Herman Melville was and um, Leaves of Grass was like and the author of the Leaves of Grass were still alive. Right. Like totally dominant over the scene. But, you know, everyone's a hustler. Like, I think I, I mean, it's the same thing with the Philip Roth story that begins the book where it's like, yeah, even Philip Roth is out there being like, my skin is too thin. I haven't I need to get calluses. Oh, yeah. What's his line? He says your your skin is translucent. What how, what is the line? Oh, it's great. Well, the line is like your skin gets thinner and thinner until they can hold you up. Like, you know, uh, Nathan asks him, like, does your skin ever get thicker? Yeah, right. and, he, and and he's like, no, your skin just gets thinner and thinner until they can hold you up to the light and see right through you. Uh, <laughs> right? Yeah, and you're Philip Roth, so you know. What is the biggest failure in your 
life. Is there any one thing that keeps that you keep coming back to or that you kind of can't get past? No, I, I mean, I think there's a certain torment for me. Like the thing I think is a bit maybe like there, I mean, sure. There are lots of things I haven't gotten that I wanted, but you know, like, so what? Like that, I, I, I think at a certain point you just stop caring. I've it's also not too late. You could still get a genius grant. They yeah. Still... Well, no, but like, <laughs> but the, um, but you know, there's lots of, there's lots of good things that have happened too. So that's, that's okay. I, I think one of the things I find particularly hard is that things that I've written, the best things I've written often are the least read. Yeah. And like, and I think that's, it's very, it's hard when you sit down and you just want to get into the craft where you're like, you know, my favorite short story, no one has read my favorite novel, love in the mess were in that my favorite thing of my own that I've written, like was published in like 500 copies in the middle of the 2008 crash. So there was no publishing in mainstream presses really. And you know, no one has read it. Like maybe 500 people have read it. And that's true of some like my be- like my best essays for sure just slip beneath the waters with nobody noticing them. And then, you know, something I spent an hour on that goes in your time will be read by a couple million people. And that's, I don't know if that's like failure. It's just that, that makes it hard to that disconnect between effort and outcome is just, uh, it's just hard to process. Yeah. One of the people on Twitter, I I posted something yesterday before we spoke asking if people, if there was anything they wanted us to touch on. And you do have this metaphor throughout the, the book of hurling yourself against the door. And I guess somebody wanted to know if there was a particular door you keep hurling yourself against. I don't know if that was well, exactly how you put it. Like, you know, the places that have said, well, Canada really is, has been tough for me. Like Canada does not want me. Like, like, um, like, and, and of course that doesn't really map. Like, you know, Esquire wanted me and the Atlantic wants me. And, you know, I've written for the New Yorker and I'm talking to you and so on. Like, there's just a very weird thing where my own country really doesn't want me. Wait, why? But you're not Canadian, to be clear. You're not, you're American. You've, I am Canadian. Oh, you are Canadian. I am, okay. I am 100% so you, Canadian. But you had to go back Canada. to Canada because of your wife. wife Is she yeah. Canadian as well? She's Canadian. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. And so why well, just a couple of want Canadians. you? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's actually one of the mysteries of my life. I don't know why. Um, Canadian institutions want nothing to do with me and have a tendency to fire me for no reason. And um, why, like, you know, I was I was nominated for a national magazine award in the states, never in Canada, right? It's a very odd thing for me. I, I, and it, of course, in a sense, it doesn't matter because, like, you know, I'm working in America. Like, that's that's obviously a much bigger market and more prominent and so on. But it's a weird thing. It's a, it's a weird thing to carry around with you. It's like, well, they, I'm in a city where they don't want me. They want me in New York, but not in, in Toronto. It's, but, but it's, it's just so strange. So like, I I would say that, you know, the doors that I throw myself against that don't open were those ones. Who was it that said you're never a hero within a hundred miles of home or something like that? Well, I, I also think like when people say if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere or crazy. Like New York is like the it, it, like they want talent. They're out looking for it. You know what I mean? Like it's it's the easiest place in some sense to make it. I yeah. think that's that's also true. 
when I was, so I lived in Lincoln, Nebraska when I was in my early thirties, cause I had been in New York. I've written about this. Some people know this. I'd been hustling around in New York in my twenties and had some success. I had a couple pieces in the New Yorker. I was a pretty successful freelancer. Um, but I was so broke. I ended up moving to Nebraska. Anyway, long story. There was a point at which I was so broke that I tried to get a job at an advertising agency in Lincoln, Nebraska. Okay. And I had already published multiple pieces in the New Yorker. I had right. like been on NPR, all the things. Okay. And I yeah. fairly well known in literary circles in New York. And they made me take this copywriting test sure. to get this job at this ad agency in Lincoln. And I, they, I, I didn't get the job. They, they didn't hire me. That's I wasn't like the qualified. James Joyce story. Yeah, it's not like me James, and James Joyce. I know it's you and James Joyce are absolutely the same. But like you know, but like the, I mean, it is like James Joyce going to a technical college in Como and being asked to sit an exam, like yeah. for English competency. Like that happened, and he failed. Yeah. Like, no, I, I, mean, I had published a book. I remember I had published a book even, and and I still had to take this out. And I remember the, the I had to write copy for um they had the, the account with like the the Burlington Northern Santa Fe train. It was, it was, it was for like the train line and uh, I didn't get it. So, but it was probably a good thing you didn't get it. Right. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, the jobs I didn't get are like huge wins for me. Like, yeah. You know, I, I think of some of the jobs I applied for when I came back to Toronto and like, if I'd gotten them, my life would be over. Uh, I know. All right. I yeah. Although I have many, I, I'm in a regret spiral these days. But we can maybe we can talk about this in the bonus content. All right. Well, I'm going to keep you a little bit over time, and we're going to talk about some of your other books and some other stuff. But uh, do you have any any final thoughts on failure? I just love this book. I absolutely. It's just it's beautifully written, and it kind of it made me feel like writing. So that is no. Except that is, everyone, everyone, please go and buy it. That would be the that would be my only remark. I think it's a good gift to give to aspiring writers. I, I but then is it I was just sort thinking of about that? Do you think maybe it would be not. Too much of a gesture, like, <laughs> hey, you're a writer and a failure. Like, why don't you have this thing? Like, I think the, I've gotten a lot of really lovely messages about this book, like people writing long things about how it helped them and so on. And I'm really like, I, I so I'm not, but like, I think you have to kind of buy it for yourself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, it might be a microaggression to give it to somebody. Exactly. It's like if your mom gave you this book, like, oh, my daughter's a writer. I'll give her this book on writing and failure. You know, a bit of a bit of a tip off. All right. Well, buy it for yourself. It's yeah, act, buy it for yourself. For sure. yeah. All right. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure. That was my conversation with author Stephen Marsh. Last summer, he published The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. His new book that we've been talking about is On Writing and Failure, or on the peculiar perseverance required to endure the life of the writer, Field Notes. That's the subtitle to the book. Stephen has written several other books, including The Unmade Bed, The Messy Truth About Men and Women in the 21st Century. Um, he's written some novels. He is the host of the hit audio series, How to Not Fuck Up Your Kids Too Bad, and its sequel, How to Not Fuck Up Your Marriage Too Bad. So those are must-listens after this podcast. 
Once again, if you want to hear the bonus portion of this conversation where Stephen talks about some of his own failures and I share some of mine, go to megandaum.substack.com and become a paying subscriber at any level. That's it. I told you enough. I told you about the unspeakeasy. You're tired of hearing about that. I will be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.